0: G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane. I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning? For now, here's the sermon John 15, 13. Folks, did you spot that one as we went through? John 15, verse 13. I don't know everyone here today, um, I've only met some of you just this morning. Um, You may have not been in church your entire life, but I'd be deeply surprised if this phrase didn't at least ring a bell. Actually, John 15, 13, Jesus speaking, that's the context, privately with his friends, John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus speaking on the last night of his earthly life with his friends, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Um, So welcome back to our series on John's Gospel, one of the Bible's four biographies of Jesus. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, um, where we are leading up to Easter. Um, So week by week up until Easter, we're taking it at about a chapter at a time until we get to John 17, we'll slow down there a little bit. Uh, but So on the one hand, we believe that these words are God's very words to us, um, hence our desire to pour over it and digest it and absorb it and figure it out, God's Word. But without a doubt, on the other hand, we read here a very human story, don't we? Written by and about People, John, one of the 11 who were gathered around Jesus in that actual event, heard these words from his master, from the horse's mouth, so to speak, not yet realizing just how gruesomely vivid they would become for him within the next 24 hours. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Uh, So let's remember our context. Jesus, just um, a couple of hours, maybe. Uh, until his betrayer Judas arrives with a mob to arrest Jesus and then 12 hours, just round figures approximately, 12 hours let's say from his conviction and sentencing to be crucified and then by late tomorrow afternoon in the story's time Christ's body will hang lifeless from the cross. Jesus, knowing what lay ahead, spoke these words, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Um, my point is simply this, this morning as we try to find our bearings coming to this passage in John 15, Jesus wasn't mucking around. He wasn't mucking around. His words shouldn't ring hollow like some quotable quote, um, you know, pretty font against a soft focused landscape kind of a thing stuck on your Pinterest wall um, or whatever and today I guess I'm hoping that yes we get a sense of, well not just the gravity of Jesus' words here, we should get a sense of that but also the lightness that they invite us into, the gravity and the lightness. May we sense something of the lightness that we can enjoy knowing that Christ counts us among the friends that he had in mind there. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You know, we, we have that beautiful old song, don't we? What a friend we have in Jesus. May we appreciate some of the lightness that that, should, that reality should bring us. Uh, so today we're going to unfurl some of the layers of, um, of what friendship with Jesus might mean for us. Can we please pray as we come to John 15? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, these pithy little phrases, these inspiring quotes, these aspirational one-liners that we come across in life, they have their place, they encourage us, at times they challenge us, Uh, they really do inspire us, sometimes they are just the kick that we need. But today, Father, we pray for more than a momentary prod in the right direction. We ask, would you please grant that we deeply appreciate these weighty words of our Lord, As he approached the darkest hours of his earthly life. Father, we have before us an entire chapter of Christ's speech, speech that's still relevant as your word to us, so please give us wisdom to rightly get what he was saying to them then and what you are saying by your Spirit to us now with these same words. Give us courage, Father, to face it where it might prove hard or difficult or uncomfortable. Or confronting, but give us two affections that appreciate the beauty of Christ's call on our lives here this morning. Yes, even his claim over our lives here this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Could we please get a little bit of a run up to um, our passage today by just looking at that Old Testament reading that Pia read so very well to us just before from Isaiah 5? Do you remember the image there? In the Isaiah 5 reading, um, I chose it quite deliberately. Isaiah 5 from verse 1, I'll give you a chance to flick to it if you've uh, got it in your lap. Isaiah, an 8th century BC prophet, so sometime in the 700s BC, um, looking toward God's saving work, but looking around um, at the nation, the reality which was not so impressive in his time Um, amongst God's people. Isaiah 5 verse 1, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. All right, there's the image. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. It's quite rosy sounding, isn't it? A delightful little picture there. Um, Folks, tell me though, to whom does that vineyard refer? So it's a metaphor, it's an emblem um, or a symbol. Um, Of whom is that vineyard a symbol? Um, So it tells us, uh, pick it up from verse 2. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, this is God speaking now, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done? For my vineyard, than I have done for it. When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I'll tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge and it'll be destroyed. I'll break down its wall and it'll be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow up there. I'll command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty, here we have it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So here's our little um, history lesson from, you know, 700 years before Jesus. Who's the vineyard? My people, God's people isn't it? It's there in that last bit, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, that is to say, my people who, as far as I'm concerned, live fruitless lives, God is saying of them in that time um, in history, they have stuffed it. For all of my care and cultivation and attention, you're a mess and it will end badly for you, O my people. Isaiah's message to historic Israel. Now, that's just one passage, It paints using the same palette, using the same symbolic, uh, um, but it is a punchy symbol. Now, listen to this. In the Old Testament, the vine is a common symbol for Israel, the covenant people of God. So, this is one commentator on this. In the Old Testament... The vine is a common symbol for Israel, the covenant people of God. Most remarkable is the fact that whenever historic Israel is referred to under this figure of a vine, it is the vine's failure to produce good fruit that is emphasised, along with the corresponding threat of God's judgement on the nation. Now, in contrast to such failure, do you see where we're going now? Jesus claims, I am the true vine. That is, the one whom Israel pointed, uh, the one to whom Israel pointed, the one that brings forth good fruit. And he points out, look, in John's Gospel so far, says this writer, Jesus has already superseded the temple, the Jewish feasts, Moses, various holy sites. Here he supersedes Israel as the very locus of the people of God. Folks, take take another look now at uh, that heaving great statement, John chapter 15 verse 1, would you come with me there please, to these 11 God-fearing, Bible-believing Jewish men on the eve of Jesus' own death, John 15 verse 1, I am the true vine, Jesus speaking. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You, that's the 11 men with him, are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a person remains in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, do you see sort of the power, the strength of his statement? It's not just some pretty little picture, is it? Um, Now, uh, brothers and sisters this morning, is it fair to say, when we hear this kind of stuff from Jesus, I mean, he says it fairly often, this kind of exclusive stuff, it's my way or the highway, you're either with me or you're not kind of stuff. You know, basically, you have to be with me if you want a spiritual life. Is it fair to say, we tend to think of our immediate context. Um, so there's us and, you know, we're the ones with Jesus and so presumably we'll bear fruit. Um, and then there's them, those unbelievers, non-believers or people who've never heard about Jesus or people who are hostile and antagonistic or they don't even believe in God or perhaps they don't believe in him and but they're angry with him and how does that even work? Um, we hear that stuff about the world from down in verse 18 with all of its... Um, hatred and so forth and our minds go again to the irreligious, the non-believing, the God-denying perhaps. Can we please just notice here who Jesus was setting himself against with this statement, with this image, with this vine? He's saying empty spiritual lives are what the historic people of God will have if they refuse to come to me, remain in me, bear fruit in me. He doesn't even have his eyes on those non-believing people, heathen and pagans out there, does he? Israel he's talking about, people who believe in God, in other words, the historic nation that God chose and bore with and gave every privilege to, like withered branches, will be bundled up and tossed unless they come to me. Why? Because I'm the true vine and I am where spiritual fruit and life and the future can be found. And all this in the closing hours of his earthly life. Remain in me, be a branch uh, from me. Verse 6, if anyone doesn't remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown in the fire to be burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you may bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Before we move on, folks, this morning, and especially, I guess, if you're um, new to Jesus or this Jesus stuff is kind of new to you, you're trying to just wrap your head around it um, still at the present time, Um, I I do appreciate that Jesus' words here, they might sound kind of blunt and confronting, I think they are confronting actually, Um, harsh even, but could we make sure that we do appreciate as well the flip side of what he's saying here? Because it's not all harsh and blunt um, to those out there, so to speak. Can Can we please notice that he's saying, I will make people, I will take regular people like you and make you part of the true people of God. Uh, not, not in some sort of sham, hollow, rotten to the core, pretenders, just religious types who are hypocrites. No, for thousands of years, he's saying, we've seen people try religion and try to be God's people under their own steam. Isn't that what the example of Israel teaches us? Forget about it. I am the true vine. I'm where it starts. If you want to live a fruitful spiritual life, come to me. So the question then becomes, doesn't it, do you want, to, do you want in with Jesus? Um, would you stick to Him like a branch to the vine, finding your life and vigour and colour and strength with Him and in Him for the rest of your life? Would you like a spiritually fruitful life? Whatever that means and we're going to see a little bit more of that a life that somehow points to the glory of God, to the Father's glory. It's quite a picture, quite a hope, uh, quite a promise for you. So firstly, he is the true vine. Secondly though, um, he starts detailing, adding detail to this portrait of life within the vine and that's where I'd like us to move to next. Branch life or vine life, what does it look like? Life remaining in Jesus. Well, how does that what shape does that have? That's where we're going to go now, his true love. Now, as we um, read on, could I ask you, please, to weigh something for me as we read through? So here's the question. Actually, it's two questions, um, and I'm not sure the answers a really obvious one. So, So do watch closely. Two questions. Firstly, what really has Jesus' heart in these verses that are to come? what what really seems central to him seems to grip his heart um, more than anything else. That's the first question to have in mind as we read these verses. And secondly, related to it, what is supposed to capture our hearts? If we're branches in the vine, what is supposed to grip our hearts, have our hearts um, absorb us? What are we supposed to love more than anything else with all of our heart? Um, I reckon that'll help us to unlock this business about what kind of fruit we're actually supposed to be bearing, okay? So, true loves, keep an eye out uh, for that. From verse 9, would you read with me please from verse 9 of John 15? As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what is uh, his father's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. It's very strange to our modern ears. Um, Just some of the little combinations in there. Did you notice some of those? What have we got? Obey, obey right alongside love. How can they go together? Um, What was another? Commands nestled in there with verse 11, joy, that your joy may be complete. Um, Friends with Jesus, that sounds great, doesn't it? But we still have a master. I think to our modern minds, don't those combinations of things just sound weird at least? Uh, It's culturally weird for us, but maybe partly because we think we have to be the boss of our lives for us to be happy or fulfilled or complete or to make it. Uh, Maybe because we always think we know best, certainly better than God would know, which is kind of arrogant when you think about it, especially given that we serve a God who came incarnate into our world as a human being, lived human life alongside us. But friends, to our question, who or what has the heart of Jesus more than anything else in this paragraph? And who or what is supposed to captivate ours? I know that verse 13 says that, well, it's one another, isn't it? It's friends. Verse 13, we've already read, I don't know how many times I've said it already, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Verse 17 is like it, right at the end of that paragraph that I read, this is my command, love each other. But at the risk of sounding like I'm contradicting Jesus, which is not something I do lightly, don't we see that love for one another flowing out of a different, a prior and earlier and even more basic and central love, even within this paragraph, don't we? Um, Jesus' love for God, his Father. Isn't that what fuels his love for us here? Even commands Uh, his love for us, even inspires his love for us, can I use that word? So verse 9, as the Father has loved me, do you see the primary relationship, so I have loved you. Um, uh, Verse 10, just as I have obeyed my Father's command and remain in his love. Now why do I labour this? What's the point of going on about this if the application's still going to be, love one another? It's simply to say this, if you'd say that you're living basically a Christian life, I'm mean, not with Jesus but I mean basically Christian in, in how it looks because you're trying to be loving to other persons just like Jesus was loving to his friends, while in your heart you, if you're honest, do lack a kind of true and vibrant and ardent love for God and his Christ. Can I just put it to you a few things? Firstly, I don't think Jesus recognises that As a Christian life, I mean, that's worth noticing, isn't it? At least Uh, we we saw that before. He is the true vine, and we're either with Him and in Him, or we're wasting away, like the historic people of God. Um, Secondly, I'm not convinced that your love and His love are kind of pulling in quite the same direction. You might be a lovely person, I'm not going to deny that, but I'm not sure that they're pulling in the same direction. I'm not sure that you uh, it seems that there 's a bigger intention and plan and direction the master 's business about which um, we 're supposed to be kind of pulling a, a direction that we 're supposed to be going in our love it 's about people coming to recognize and embrace Jesus for who he is um, and uh, and and life with us in him um, thirdly and I say this respectfully and and I guess with a certain sense of the i, I don 't know the challenge of love um, I fear if you're trying to live a loving life apart from love for Jesus and the love of Jesus for you, I fear that you may not have the resources that you need over the long haul to love in the kind of direction that Jesus is loving, Um, to live up to your loving aspirations because loving is hard, isn't it? Greater love has no no one than this that he laid down his life for his friends. Love is nothing if it's not difficult Friends of Jesus, though, do have some pretty potent help. Verse 16, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. But not only are we chosen the rest of the sentence, then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. So if you're not with Jesus at the moment, maybe it's worth at least answering, pondering some of these questions um, in your own heart. Sounds dramatic. Um, But now think on these, am I ever likely to find a greater mentor than Jesus when it comes to love? Now look at the life of Jesus, am I ever likely to find a greater mentor than Jesus when it comes to love? Could I ever find a closer friend than a Jesus who would personally choose me, me, warts and all? Could I hope for a much higher perspective and sense of meaning and direction than knowing that my efforts contribute to God's intention and purpose for the lives of the people around me. Sacrificial love might be jolly hard, I think it is, but it's in practice that the joy and the love and the commands and the friendship and the obedience all come together. Lastly, so he's the true vine um, who puts his true love on display Um, to the disciples and for us to then join him in but the reality is they face a tough road, they face a tough road. Thirdly, lastly, come with me to that last section of Jesus' speech to his disciples here in John 15. Um, So as we've seen, it's not just those bad guys out there, those unbelieving, irreligious, God-hating monsters or something like that, Um, No, the world is full of ordinary people, which for them, ordinary meant upright Jewish men and women who went to the synagogue, who read their Torah, who tried to follow God's laws. But the fault line was was with Jesus, wasn't it? Jesus is the only way to God in the end. Now, are you with him? Because if you are, please don't expect it to be smooth sailing. Verse 18, read with me there. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you? No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours also. I just want us to think just a moment longer on this language of uh, the the world, this hatred and all of this kind of stuff. Because I think when that kind of rhetoric, you know, the hateful world, I think when we hear it just in modern speech, I think it's usually put to one of two purposes, and I think neither of them fit here. Um, so we sometimes hear it like, "Look at how awful the world is out there! Gosh, we've got to steer clear of them." You know what I mean? Look at how debauched, broken, um, evil, how awful the world is, we've got to steer clear of them. Now the interesting thing is, and we'll get to this in a moment, Jesus actually counsels us the opposite. (laughs) He doesn't say steer clear of them, no, actually quite the opposite, we'll see that in just a second. Um, The other times we hear this language of the world is when we feel kind of small Uh, and vulnerable. It's like the world, it is so different, it is so powerful and influential in our lives that we Christians, we've just got to learn to go with the flow. They'll persecute us if we are too different from them. So we've got to learn to blend in. You can't expect young Christians to um, do this or refrain from that in the modern world or whatever it is. Do you see how the thinking goes? you just got to blend in. We can't be too different. But what I see here in this passage, folks, is a man committed to bringing his unpopular message to a world that doesn't want to know him, for the most part, and he's committed to sticking at it. It's remarkable, isn't it? It doesn't fit either of those. He doesn't say it to discourage or dissuade us, to call us off the task. No, just to warn us, we're going to need his help, and it might be jolly hard but will have his help in spades. Look at from verse 21. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they don't know the one who sent me. If I'd not come and spoken to them, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. Remember, Jesus is at the end of a life of preaching and ministry and speaking and also acting. Verse 23, he who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, They would not be guilty of sin. But now they've seen the miracles and yet they've hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. So we're to neither retreat from the world nor are we to blend in with it. But verse 26, when the counsellor, that's the Holy Spirit, when the counsellor comes who I will send you from the father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the father, he will testify about me and you also Must testify, for you've been with me from the beginning. I think the comfort here for us, brothers and sisters, and sometimes we do face kind of difficult challenges for trying to hold out Jesus amongst the people that we're amongst. Not always, and sometimes it goes really well. But brothers and sisters, let's never interpret the opposition of people who aren't Christians around us, people who aren't engrafted into the vine that is Jesus, Let's never interpret opposition as a sign that we're failing in our task as Christians. Let's never imagine that life as a Christian will look like what the world expects it to or wants it to. I don't think Jesus leaves us with that really as much of an option. I think I may have read this to you before, sometimes we would prefer to die for Jesus than to live for him remember this, this is Ed Welch, the Christian psychologist and um, he's thought a lot about the way that we fear people very often, more than we fear God. Sometimes we would prefer to die for Jesus than to live for Him. If someone had the power to kill us for our profession of faith, I imagine, he says, that most Christians would say, yes, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, even if it meant death. The threat of torture might make people think twice but I think most Christians would acknowledge Christ. However, If making a decision for Jesus means that we might spend years being unpopular, ignored, poor or criticised, then there are masses of Christians who temporarily put their faith on the shelf. Death isn't imminent, so why hurry into such a rash decision? There'll be time later to get things straight with God. In other words, says Ed Welch, kill me, but don't keep me from being liked, appreciated or respected. I can sure relate to that. I think those are sage words as we carry the gospel in our neck of the woods, in our classrooms, um, in our friendship circles, in our lounge rooms, out in the work ute, as we go through the week, in our marriages, even with our significant other. If you belong to the world, verse 19, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Let's wrap up. So John 15. John 15, on the eve of Jesus' own death, as he stared down the barrel of putting this little maxim into gruesome practice, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. John 15 paints for us this morning, not a sorry picture, the wearisome road ahead for us Christians, not in the main, I think it paints a portrait of our great Saviour's greatest love for us and the gift that it is to be part of something that a watching world cannot quite grasp or understand, even as we invite them to be a part of it with us. Can I leave you just with the example of um, one bloke? His name's John Chrysostom, and I reckon he understood this passage to a T. John Chrysostom, he was from um, the 4th century, so the 300s AD, and um, he was a preacher, and he'd run afoul of Empress Eudoxia. Um, Empress Eudoxia did not appreciate John's preaching or John's message, and she had both the mind and the power to do something about him. So she threatened him, first of all, with banishment get rid of him, send him to some literally God-forsaken corner of the globe, right? Here's his response. You cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. "Ah, But I will kill you, said the Empress. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God, said John. I'll take away your treasures. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. No, you cannot. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. Can we please pray together? Father in heaven, it sounds so dramatic, this um, life in the vine, remaining in Jesus, abiding in him when it's before a, a threatening and powerful empress who commands our lives, our treasures, our friends, our world. It sounds so dramatic and yet, Father, um, we know that you are mighty to save even there and we give thanks For our late brother John Chrysostom and for his faithfulness, clearly a work of your spirit in his life. But Father, very often, week by week, the battle is fought on much more humble grounds uh, in the cut and thrust of life. Uh, Father, would you please teach us, even this week, to remain in Jesus? Would you inflame our love more and more for him who put his love on display for us at the cross, who went to the very end of his life for us. Would you please help us to delight in Jesus, uh, his love for us, his choosing of us, his faithfulness to us and his power to deliver us day by day and even to the very end. Uh, Lord God in heaven, we pray, would you please help us to love the people around us who are maybe, at least as we try to share the gospel not so lovely to share it with. (laughs) Um, Father, we give thanks for the many non-Christians in our lives um, who don't believe in you or aren't quite sure if they believe in you. Um, Lord God, we pray that whether there's hostility there or not, um, that you would grant us to testify faithfully to our Christ, that they would see in us, in our actions, in our love for one another, but especially in our words, um, the glory of the gospel of Jesus, and perhaps even their part in it. Would you reach out to them by the power of your spirit? Uh, Would you choose them, we pray, uh, for salvation, just as you've chosen us. May they come to know the security in Christ that we have as a friend. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.